The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're having one of our coffee talks with two legends of embryology. Dr. Emre Sally is having coffee today with Drs. David Gardner and Denis Sackis. Um, our two guests from today need, need no introduction. In fact, if you look around wherever you are, you're probably find one of their books lying around. Um, Dr. David Gardner is currently the Redmond Berry Distinguished Professor at the University of Melbourne. He's also the Scientific Director of Melbourne IVF and the President of the Alpha International Society of Clinical Embryology. He obtained his bachelor's degree and completed his PhD in biology at the University of York in the UK, where he completed his thesis with Professor Henry Lees. He then worked at Harvard University with John Biggers and at Monash University with Alan Tramson, focusing on early human development. After that, he directed the laboratory services at Monash IVF until 1995, before he moved to the USA to be the scientific and lab director at Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine, a position he held until 2007, before he moved back to Australia as the chair of the Department of, the, of Zoology at the University of Melbourne. He is one of the most prolific researchers in the field of human embryology, and he has published over 200 peer-reviewed papers, over 60 book chapters, and has edited 15 books. He has an age factor of 93. Last time we checked, it's probably gone up since then, and a total of over 27,700 citations. Our other guest for the day, Dr. Denny Sackis, is currently the scientific director of Boston IVF and co-founder of Boston IVF Biotechnologies. He is also an adjunct professor at Yale School of Medicine, as well as an adjunct prof associate professor of zoology at the Melbourne University. Dr. Sackas received his bachelor's degree from the University of Melbourne in Australia, after which he earned his PhD at Monash University in 1990, working with Alan Tramson as well, during which he coincided with David Gardner. After that, he served as IVF at the University Hospital of Geneva in Switzerland and at Birmingham Hospital in England. In 2001, he moved to the United States as the IVF lab director at Yale School of Medicine. He held that position until 2011, and from there, he went to his current position at Boston IVF. He is also the author of over 200 papers and three books, and is, like David Gardner, a world-renowned figure in the field of embryology. As two of the most prominent figures in embryology over the last few decades, we wanted to talk with both of them about the evolution of human embryology and how things have changed since they started. Let's listen in. Benny, David, uh, welcome to our podcast, and thank you so much for taking time to have coffee with us today. You two met in 1989-1990 in Australia when Danny was a graduate student and David was a postdoc. I, I, was, I was doing my PhD. Yeah, and I just arrived um, having done a couple of postdocs with Henry Lees and John Biggers. So, yeah, it was 1989. We were very young and fresh-faced, I yep. can tell you. <laughs> 
So I, I want to actually, I would really want to know what things, how things were at the time. What was the state of embryo culture at the time and what had already been accomplished and what was on the launch pad? Well, I think embryo culture back in the uh, late 80s was pretty much what, as it was in the 70s, even in the 60s. Mm. So everything was pretty much orientated around mouse embryo culture media, which were really pioneered and developed by John Biggers, Ralph Brinster, Ray Wales, David Whittingham in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, Pat Quinn sort of modified those media to make what we know as a human tubal fluid medium. But in essence, they're very simple salt solutions. And that was the state of culture media for the, for the embryo itself. But at the same time, um, some labs were using tissue culture media. And that was really championed uh, right here in Melbourne by Alex Lata, who used Hamza F10. And when David Meldrum uh, came over to Australia to learn sort of what, what the Aussies were doing, he took back to LA the Hamza F10. And so by default, all of Meldrum's trainees used Hamza F10. Ironically, one of those was, was, was Bill Schoolcraft. Uh, I, I walk into a lab that's using Hamza F10, which was obviously came all the way. So it was, it was a complete um, array, different culture media, but none of which were really developed uh, based on physiology, what the embryo needs. Yeah. And even in Europe, um, I think Menizo's B2 was quite popular, but that was probably later um, developed by Menizo. But um, really, you know, we you have to remember also in those days, everyone would make their own culture media. Yep. So, yeah, right. you know, the the we would sit there and weigh, luckily, you know, the, the, the mouse embryo culture media that David referred to had like seven components. So... Um, you know, they were basically a few ionic substrates and, you know, glucose, pyruvate and lactate. So you'd sit there on a little balance, weigh it all up, make it up, check the osmolarity. So these are all foreign now to, to I don't think embryologists would even know what the osmolarity, you know, a lot of those things are in. And then then you would have to check it with mouse embryos. And then if it didn't, if it, nothing grew in it, you'd be back at the weighing balance again. So um, it was fun. <laughs> And what was really interesting was that these media only really supported the development of F1 mouse embryos. If you took random bread, outbred strain, the media didn't work. Uh, the embryos arrested at the Tucson stage. So even in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, mouse embryos really didn't develop very well. And they had what we call the two-cell block. Um, and interestingly, I guess maybe not a lot of people know about the two-cell block anymore because people take it for granted mouse embryos grow to the blastocyst but only certain strains did. And in fact, I began my career in 1983 through my honours year with Henry on a project. It was the mouse two-cell block. And I remember very luckily meeting Bob Edwards that year. And when he asked me, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm working on the two-cell block. He replied wittily, uh, oh, the death of many a good PhD. <laughs> and I went, oh, no, you know, this is terrible. But so, you know, that was a challenge. For, and Denny and I took it on. Uh, but at the same time, we couldn't get domestic animal embryos to go through the 16th yeah. stage, so they blocked. So people like uh, Fulvio Gandolfi had pioneered co-culture for sheep and cattle. And of course, then the human embryo didn't grow at all very well past the 48 cell stage. You know, if we got a blastocyst, it kind of linked along in HAMSF10. So all these blocks were really a big impediment to all of mammalian embryology back then. So, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of the a lot of the early sort of things that we were trying to do with culture media were really aimed at, at doing 
overcoming these blocks and, you know, mostly in the mouse, obviously. And uh, so a lot of the things that are actually in culture media today and the, and the sort of concepts of culture media, actually you can really trace them back to, to this block phenomena, which, which was uh, a purely in vitro um, phenomenon, but, but uh, actually led to a lot of research. As David said, you know, a lot of his PhD was focused on it. Even my own was um, focused on that. And uh, so it, it sort of was an interesting time, at least at that stage. Yeah, and one of the other blocks we I didn't mention was, of course, the block in the hamster, um, and, and that's a curious species in itself. And that was made famous by Barry Baviston, and Barry did oh my goodness, so much work on the hamster, um, and he spent a lot of time looking at the blocks, but looking at two facets of it. One was what's the role of amino acids in regulating hamster development, and the other one was this curious thing that glucose in the presence of phosphate inhibited the hamster embryo. So I guess I brought uh, a different perspective when I joined Dan because I'd spent all this time working with two of the greatest biochemists, sort of metabolic gurus in the field with, with Henry Lees and John Biggers. And so I'd spent a lot of time looking at what embryos require. My PhD was based on the nutrient requirements and metabolism of the embryo. And it became apparent that, you know, the things that the embryos were doing in terms of their metabolic functions really weren't quite what we were aligning the culture media to do. So Denny and I started to look at metabolism as a, as a way of improving culture media. And the hypothesis was that if you can maintain a healthy metabolism, and luckily in the mouse, you can flush embryos out from the female tract and then assess them every day. So we got baseline metabolic data. And when we measured their metabolic data, whether it was pyruvate utilization or glucose to lactate conversion, um, when embryos were cultured in these conventional, simple media, their metabolism had, it was all over the place. They'd lost control of their metabolic function. Um, so we backtracked and said, look, if we can make media that maintain the metabolism of the embryos in a more in vivo-like state, our hypothesis would be that they'd be healthier. And the other sort of adjunct to that, of course, is that we already knew that Glucose metabolism was a good biomarker for the blastocyst viability work that, that came out in the 80s from uh, Renard's lab with working with Menezo in France and my own lab working with, with Henry. Um, so there was a lot of uh, sense that sort of went into this approach of looking at culture media. Wow. So in, at that time, that was on your launch pad. Can you tell us what, what else was going on in the lab and in, in the, I guess, in the area where you were working? And also, what was the uh, typical day like? Like, how did you guys work? Because sometimes we, when we talk to people, like we find out that it was uh, very, very different for, for clinicians and researchers, the way they work. I'm sure it's very different now in, in Melbourne. So, yeah, so at, at that stage, um, actually, David and I, I, I was actually doing a lot of um, work on what was called co-culture, which was sort of a, a way to try to get around some of these problems with, um, with culture media. So you would actually, you would grow the embryos on a cell line. Um, so, uh, and, and part of my thesis was actually developing culture media that would help the embryo but also allow the cells to, to grow. So we actually, some of the initial work that at least I did, and actually um, we, we sort of merged together in some of the new culture media was actually uh, developing embryo culture media that, that actually had vitamins and amino acids in it so they could actually support cell lines too. So, um, you know, 
what we used to do during the day, a lot of the days um, were mostly circled around me bothering David in some sort of way, you know, pestering him in, in, some, in some way. So, uh, you know, so that, that would happen every day virtually. Um, but a, a lot was, you know, it was the classic. We would, uh, in, in the afternoons, we were always injecting mice endlessly. Um, and then, you know, the mornings, we'd probably be collecting embryos. Uh, we would, you know, a lot of days we were we were just doing com continuous sort of culture of embryos, mouse embryos in, in different environments. Uh, and and then, uh, you know, David would be doing some of the metabolism. Um, yeah. we'd, we'd be doing transfers of embryos because a lot of the culture media, you, you know, you would get the best idea of how they were functioning by actually getting pups and knowing, you know, what the what their viability was. So, um a lot of our days were really just spent on the bench um, in, in many ways. Yeah, it, it was a bit of a roundabout, wasn't it, Dan? I mean, we were really, um, you know, we were really energised because we were, we were creating what we thought was really exciting data at the time. So we were literally doing this cycle of get up, stimulate mice, you know, put those cultures on, and then while they were growing, you know, I'd be in the lab doing single-cell metabolic analysis, Danny would be doing some co-culture work, other forms. But I think the real thing was, was was Denny hit the nail on the head when we did the transfers. Because if you go through the literature, there wasn't a lot of embryo transfers going on before that, less to say, hey, you know, are these embryos viable? But we were actually started to look at how do these components affect fetal development? Uh, and I think that was a real turning point for us because things that we measured in the lab to a point, uh, it was like a Pandora's box. When she did the embryo transfers, it was really quite an epiphany what was happening. And one good example was that was that um, we were interested in amino acids and vitamins and metabolic regulation, but we also realized that the fundamental physiology of the embryo was changing drastically from the zygote to the blastocyst. Um, and one of the things, amongst others, that were interested in was lactic acid. Um, and so we started to look at lactate gradients. And something as simple as changing the lactate concentration before and after compaction uh, had a profound effect on their viability post-transfer. Uh, and that shouldn't be such a surprise in hindsight because lactate is a profound redox regulator of the cytosol. So basically now we know it does a lot more than we ever thought it did. Um, but only by doing the transfers did we really get a, a good insight into what was going on. But it was, it was a merry-go-round. It was a, quite an intense one. And to make it even more interesting, Denny was busy also doing Susie, which was the precursor to ICSI. Uh, and I was doing um, clinical work on the weekends. So as well as doing all of this, we were both doing clinical work as well, um, which was really profound because it gave us an incredibly valuable insight into two worlds. Uh, by, by day, we were these you know, young scientists trying to break through the barriers. And by night, we were working in the clinical labs actually treating patients and seeing what it was like there. So it was it was really important to see where the gaps were so we could eventually do the translational studies. So for those that uh, can't remember <laughs> or, did, or don't know, Susie's actually subzonal insemination or sperm injection in the perivitelline plate in space. Um, it's the precursor to ICSI that, uh, um, you know, the, we, we spent a lot of we, we treated a lot of patients uh, doing that not just in Melbourne but uh, um, I used to spend some time flying around the world um, doing cases uh, in Europe and and that and teaching people actually micro manipulation too so in, in between the experiments 
um, with the embryo culture. We sort of, we, that, that was our daytime job. We also were doing other things. The, the other thing that we were doing is we weren't just moving, working on mouse. Um, we, we actually did a lot of work on, at, at that stage, we were doing sheep and goat embryos. Um, and so a lot of the things we were doing in mouse, we, we were already trying to translate to the goat and, and sheep. And then David, David did a lot of work on, on uh, um, you know, cow, sheep, goats and that. And so we used to, we used to have quite a lot of fun um, uh, working with goat, goat embryos. Uh, it was uh, the, the best story I remember is we, we turned up once to, uh, to do some goat work. Well, actually, there's a few stories that I, I, I could mention, but um, like we, we would go to do the goat embryos and uh, the first time we went down, we had everything set up for sheep. So we would try to hoard the goats into into the the barn where we used to do these experiments. So don't picture any lab. We're we're working on a on a farm uh, outside basically, and all I remember was the 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 sheep dogs were trying to herd in the goats, and the goats were just jumping over the fence. So <laughs> instead of doing uh, embryo experiments that day, we spent the whole day chasing around goats. Um, so we have some nice stories about sheep and goats. So. <laughs> goats and me. I got bruised. <laughs> a turning point in that in that twist about the domestic animals became at the time because in the late eighties Australia was in a recession, yes. and farming was really hit hard. And I remember watching on the news this poor farmer crying because behind him he was having to kill his sheep. Um, anyway, one of the colleagues we worked with is a guy called Paul Bat, and, and Paul was a real entrepreneur. And Paul walked into our office one day and says. How would you like to buy a hundred sheep for a hundred dollars? And I said, "What?" Because we were paying five bucks for a mouse. Uh, he says, yeah, you know, farmers, uh, I'd rather sell us the sheep rather than have to kill them. So I remember spending buying my first herd of sheep in about 1990 for a hundred dollars, <laughs> which we kept on a friend's farm. And you know, we did a lot of work. And again, it was all about how amino acids and vitamins and actually oxygen, um, really reduced oxygen, was was profound in getting the sheep embryo through the block. And so not only did we get the mouse through the block, but we got the sheep embryo through the block. And Fulvio Gandolfi, who was sort of the pioneer of co-culture and domestic animals, came for a sabbatical and saw our work on, you know, uh, defined medium and amino acids, et cetera, and, and the blastocysts we got. And overnight, he just stopped doing co-culture and we just moved completely. And then working with a great colleague, Jeremy Thompson, who was in New Zealand at the time, uh, we set up large uh, embryo transfer studies at Ruakura, where you could actually do hundreds and hundreds of embryo transfers. Um, and to this day, those are amongst the most highly cited papers I've got, because we were actually able to, again, look at outcomes. And one of the most profound things we found was that serum was a very common component of culture media back then. And I'm sure Denny can regale us with stories of, you know, having to get the serum from the patients we used to do that. Uh, and what we showed in the sheep was that serum actually induces what we know as a large calf or large lamb syndrome. And so it was doing, um, you know, and it has a, a profound negative effect on embryo physiology. It damages the ultrastructure of the organelles. So again, here's data. Let's say goodbye to serum because we have all this animal data to say it's, it's really not a good idea. So again, we were really fortunate because we could do laboratory and domestic animal work but yeah it wasn't without its hazards though the latter i can tell you that <laughs> that's it, this is such an incredible story i mean it's you guys i mean you guys are brilliant people both of you i know but you also have to be 
at the right time and at the right place sometimes in, in any in any science. Like, you know, when the computers were developed, being developed or when embryology, like there will not be another David Gardner and Danny Sackas because, you know, it's the field mood, which, which brings me to my next question. I mean, a lot of time passed since then, almost 30 years, believe it or not. How was how is your understanding now about human embryology? How did it evolve? And 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 we always want to ask our guests uh, to pick two or three key developments within the last two three decades. What would you choose? Of course, you know, David, you you made your a new em embryo culture medium, but overall, what what would you think? How did it change? And what were the key moments of change? The key moment for me was was actually one of those weekends doing clinical work. And it was in the old days where you actually stopped for a tea break and had a cup of tea with the doctors. Uh, and I was working one weekend in the city with uh, John Leeton, one of the pioneers. And John asked me, he sort of said, David, what can we do as physicians to help you in the laboratory? And I said, simple, just give me oviducts and uterine fluids so I know what exactly the embryo sees. Because I'd spent some time in York looking at mouse oviduct fluid and with pig oviduct fluid with a collaboration with Ron Hunter. And John was able to do that. And that gave us the insight into the embryo gradients, which exist in the oviduct and uterus, which led into G1, G2. Um, but there's a, there's a couple of stories that I mean, spring from that. So that's, that's amazing. You know, the things that can happen over a cup of tea, that's the main one. And so we'd gone on to do this and um, we presented our first concepts around G1, G2 in 1994 at the ASRM in San Antonio. And I flew out from Australia to, to give the presentation, and I was the last talk on Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> and anyone who's been to ASRM knows that's probably the last time you want to do that. And I walked into this session, and the room had maybe four or 500 people, and I thought, this is great. By the time I got to speak, I was lucky if I had four to five people in the room. Uh, but so lucky for me is that one of the people in the room was from the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine. And uh, they listened to what I had to say. And we started a collaboration after that. So the moral of that story is, you know, even if you get the last slot on the last day at the ASRM, make sure you give a damn good talk because you never know what to <laughs> take it. That's good advice. I, I, I will continue my question, but I know also when Danny was working on DNA, Sandrake, his first work was also the last poster somewhere. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a similar story. So we, you know, um, just by, again, you know, by chance, working with the right people and running into the, the right people. Um, I had, um, when I finished my, my PhD, um, I, I left Australia in, in 1990. Um, and then, because um, I was doing a lot of micromanipulation by that time and teaching a lot of groups how to do, how to do micromanipulation throughout Europe, um, I ended up with moving to Geneva, to the University of Geneva, to set up an IVF lab, but also set up another research group. So um, there I, I ran into someone that we collaborated for many years that, whose, whose father was a professor working on frog DNA. Um, and they were using a, an interesting stain called chromomycin that, that actually uh, they were they were doing some work on insects and 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 uh, invertebrates and we ended up uh, discussing one day with them and we we started we looked at human sperm and mouse sperm and um, found that you know there were very large differences in in sperm DNA between hum, you know between different patients and that so that for us even though Don Evanson had had done some work on on what was called the sperm chromatin structure assay 
that opened up a whole sort of area of research um, for, for myself, luckily, with, with a lot of colleagues and friends from Italy um, on looking at the sperm DNA and the whole, you know, the whole paternal side. Um, so, so that for me was sort of the, a, a change, although I've always managed to keep a foot in the door for embryo culture, <laughs> just to, 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 to bother David more than anything else. <laughs> I want to go back. So, David, when when the when you were, when did G one G two culture media come to life? When when was that? And how did how did it change things? For okay, well, the G one G two we really had it by about um, ninety three, uh, ninety four. We did some preliminary studies showing that G one was better than HTF, uh, but it was really sort of ninety five onwards when I started to collaborate with Bill Schoolcraft and his team that we started to get data that showed that we could grow human embryos. So. Uh, consistent with what we'd done before, I flew over to Denver and we'd worked on some donated embryos and I'd taken all the kit I needed to do uh, a dual embryonic stain so I could look at inner cell mass and blastocyst because I wanted to know that we actually had a, a competent blastocyst with an inner cell mass and we actually did, so I was delighted. And then we did a pilot study where we transferred some and I think it was like five out of eight of those patients got pregnant. And then we did the prospective randomized trial um, which was really interesting because we were so excited with the data because we were comparing it blastocyst to day three cleavage stage transfers. And obviously, we got a much higher pregnancy rate and plantation rate. But when I submitted the manuscript to human reproduction, it got, it got savaged. It was, it was brutal, actually. And I actually then met Bob soon after it had been savaged. Um, and he said, but this is what's going to happen to you now. Uh, you know, if you challenge a paradigm in science or medicine, People are not going to, you know, readily take it on board. You have to keep proving it. So it can be quite a difficult sell. And I think for the next 10 years, uh, every day I was talking about it, I, his, his voice came into my head because it, it was hard to convince people that blastocysts actually could produce data like we had. Um, so it was, um, I used to, people used to joke, but it's true, I used to say I was wearing a Kevlar jacket under every suit I ever wore to give a talk about blastocyst for the first few years. Um, <clears throat> because I like to say it was received with a healthy degree of skepticism. Um, but we, we persevered and I think time has shown that, uh, you know, blastocyst transfer is a, a very important thing. And what one has to remember is that we only transferred cleavage stage embryos because we had to, it was a necessity. Uh, because we couldn't grow the embryo. And what we learned from the mouse, the goat, the cow, the sheep, is if you take cleavage stage embryos and put them in the uterus, the outcomes are very poor, very poor. And in fact, in terms of cattle and sheep, it's, it can have developmental consequences for the offspring. So from a biological point of view, I still find it curious that people even consider cleavage stage embryo transfer something that one should do. It was done out of necessity, and it's certainly something that isn't uh, appropriate in any other mammalian species. So that's that's an interesting thing, I think. The other thing that's interesting is that sort of the, you know, the forebearer, if you want, of, of some of the, the media were were in the, you know, initial work that David and, and I did, you know, in the, in the early 90s. Um, but it, it was interesting because it was very hard in Melbourne because of the, the laws and that to actually do the blastocyst. You know, we had media that we, we were very confident that would grow human embryos really well, but, but actually we, we couldn't do the experiments. So, you yeah. know, that, you know, it's a lot of things are just timing. So the, the funny thing is if you actually go back and look at the, 
what was it, 93, that human reproduction paper. There's mm-hmm. there's some media in there called the KK media. Um, and, and KK actually, the reason we called it KK was because every time David and I were doing embryo culture experiments, Trounson, Alan Trounson would, would walk into the lab and go look at us and called us the culture kids. So which which in, in terms for us, we transferred to KK. So that that media or that series of media, we, we always look at fondly because uh, it reminds us when uh, we were called the culture kids because that's all we used to do. So especially in Alan Trounson's eyes. <laughs> I mean, this is a, I mean, through that work, actually, uh, David, then you were able to do the extended culture. And now we all consider it golden standard in any IVF lab, at least for yeah. now. Things may change one day, but I think we would all agree that it is it is the standard. Mm-hmm. Um, what else do you see as a as a big change in the past 20, 30 years? Of course, XC, but anything else? I think the general acknowledgement that oxygen is a, is a bigger regulator of embryo development than anyone first thought, um, but it's still a discussion point in the literature, which is I find still quite amusing, that still labs will use 20% oxygen, when in fact, 5% oxygen is far superior because it's physiological. Uh, the data's out there to show how pathological 20% is. It affects gene expression, the epigenome, metabolism, the proteome, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, getting people to use low oxygen, I think, is, is still um, can be still a challenge. But I think that was a huge move over the last 20 years. Okay. I want to I want to move to a little bit of a more social thing because you're both very successful, but also you're very unique in that you both worked, I think, at least in three continents, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and how do you think this geographical mobility affected your career and and of course the family life? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it it can only be seen as a huge advantage for us. I mean, really. Um, I mean, Danny and I. The nice thing about it is we see each other all the time um, and we've known each other for so long, but but our paths have crossed the globe um, all over the place. Um, for, for me, I think it's been um, not only a great experience, but an honor to have had the opportunity to work with so many different people in so many different environments. And just from a personal thing, having lived in three continents, it, it truly gives you a, a much better global perspective on on who we are, I think. So, you know, philosophically, I wouldn't change it. Uh, scientifically, it's been exceptional. Yeah, I, I can only agree. Like, I've lived in quite a few countries, uh, um, even on the different continents. So um, it, it's, you know, apart from all the science, the people you meet, you know, just that experience is, um, is, is great. You know, uh, I, I still miss... Um, being in Europe and hearing the different languages, for example, especially in Switzerland. Um, in terms of family life, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, um, I, I was sort of lucky because a lot of the things I did before I sort of got married. But um, uh, I hope my wife's not listening to this. But uh, my wife is a thousand times a better scientist than I ever am, as you know, Emery yourself. Um, and you know, she she probably suffered most because I was the one that was sort of, uh, I used to get the 10-year itch and have to move countries every now and then. So it's getting a bit harder to do now. But, um, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's something people probably don't see, but um, it's invaluable in terms of, you know, who you meet, who you know, um, and actually just sort of formulating the way you think too, I think. Yeah, 
yeah. I think working with different mentors and, and also working, you know, with the with the best people you can is a huge component. Um, best advice I was ever given as a graduate student uh, was go work with the best. And, you know, it, it may not be the easiest thing to get in their laps, but if you can, it's a great experience and you can assimilate through osmosis kind of some of the things that makes them make them great. So I think that's been that's was a huge component too. Yeah. That last comment brings me to my next question. Any word of wisdom to the beginning beginners? What would be your advice? Well, it's interesting. Every year I say to the new graduate students, you're so lucky because this year is the best year to be, you know, in an embryologist. <laughs> and they all say, yeah, you, you'll say that every year, David. You must say that every year. And I say, yeah, I do, because it's true. Every year it becomes more exciting to do what we do. So I think anybody who's <clears throat> starting out now or is young in their career, it, it is truly an amazing period we're going through. Again, uh, I, I say that with all objectivity. There's so much happening uh, in embryology that it's it's simply almost hard to keep up with what's going on. Uh, it's that exciting. So I would say, you know, just, just follow your heart, follow your passion, um, find yourself a good mentor, join a dynamic program. Um, and there are many, many dynamic programs that are all doing stuff. You only have to pick up the journals to realize how many great people there are around the world and in each and every country. So no matter where you are, there are great people to work with. Um, and, and like I said, through osmosis, you, you'll assimilate some, some of their excellence. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Like, I think one of the, the, the things that people shouldn't be scared of is contacting, you know, the, the known professor. You know, yeah. don't be scared to write to someone. Um, the worst that can happen is you won't get an answer, but the best thing that can happen is just by by some chance, you know, timing or whatever, you 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 will get an email back saying, yeah, I just got a grant and I'm looking for someone to do such and such work or something. Um, yeah. and, and, and I know myself personally, I, I got into IVF. Um, I, I remember when I was looking around for, for a PhD, by chance, I spoke with someone who was well-known actually in, in the IVF field called David DeCrezza, who was, you know, very well known in the sperm world. And I spoke to him about doing a PhD on um, a particular project. And he he basically, he said, oh, look, I, this afternoon, I've got a meeting with a guy called Alan Trounson, um, and I'll mention you to him. And I thought, yeah, I've got like a 0% chance of ever sort of being mentioned. And within a day, I got a phone call from Alan Trounson's secretary asking me to come in. And so it, it's purely luck. You know, that was just by luck. And um, in those days, this is, you know, the early, early 80s when uh, IVF was like in all the news in Melbourne. Um, I thought there was no hope that I would ever get into a lab like that. But, you know, it just by luck, by some chance, I got in there and, um, you know, started started my PhD. So never be scared to, to take a chance. That's, you know, the, the, the one piece of advice I'd have. Yeah, and, and I, I, would, I would echo that because that's exactly how I ended up working with Denny because I wrote to Trounson and I mailed that letter because there was no email, there was no internet, <laughs> mailed that letter, handwritten, uh, never expecting to hear from him. And within two weeks, I remember picking up this envelope, very interesting envelope because it's got Australia Post on it. Uh, and here's me in the north of England and I opened it up and Alan had just got a grant with Denny. And yes, they'd be delighted for me to come and join. 
that so it's so true dan exactly what you said the other thing is don't give up um mm. i you know doing my phd with henry i mean there was only one person in the world uh, i could have possibly worked with after working with henry and that was john john biggers john's lab had done everything before from metabolic analysis with and, and if you're not familiar with the literature literature which sadly most people don't have time anymore from the 1960s and 70s biggers lab just was trailblazed everything it was a phenomenal and i just thought I got to go work with Biggers. And John was an amazing person. And when we met, he gladly said, yes, you know, come and work with me. But we had to find money. And I wrote, I'd lost count of the number of fellowship applications I wrote and got rejected from before I finally got one. Um, so the other thing is don't give up. Just keep going. Keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. Thank you so much. This is this is so good for a lot of our listeners. Now, I want to go back to Culture Media a little bit before we're done. And uh, how do you think, how important do you think it is now as a potentially diagnostic tool? I know Danian worked on it. I did, you did. Uh, and also, do you see the culture media being modified to, to improve outcomes even further in the future? For example, you know, maybe things like improving euploidy or other aspects of embryo. Um, I, I think... One of the things that sort of has really improved is our ability to assess the embryos now in, in more real time. So I think as, we, as we're progressing, we're actually able to monitor the embryo more in, in, in real time and sort of start investigating how the embryo is sort of affected by high or low oxygen, by high or low glucose or different, different factors. Um, I think we can, we can get that sort of positive feedback from embryos much quicker now with, with sort of new technologies, new microscopies, um, ways to assess the media. Um, so I think that coupled with our ability to then, you know, modify the culture media, I think will will lead to, to drastic improvements um, in, in not just the culture media, but the, the way we culture them. Um, and I'm talking about, and this is something David could probably talk more about, like, remember, we've got them in a, effectively a bucket of water. Um, so, you know, the embryo is in a very different environment in vivo. Um, so, you know, maybe we can start sort of changing even that environment. We're not just talking about culture media in terms of components in the culture media, but but actually the, the substrate itself and not just water. So, I think I think we will see tra changes in in the way we culture embryos. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, my my career started out looking at viability markers, and and really, I uh, a gentleman by the name of Don Rieger wrote a paper in 1984 in theory and it was a hypothesis basically saying, can we link metabolism to sex and viability of the embryo? And that's exactly the time I was starting my PhD. And I keep reminding Don that I, I used his paper as the basis of my entire thesis. Um, <clears throat> and it's held true. The man was had phenomenal insight into how embryos work. And over the years, we've, we've been sort of filling in the gaps. So glucose is, a, is, is definitely a biomarker of blastocyst health. We've shown that in the cow. We've shown it in the mouse. And we published two papers in the human. The problem has always been the technologies used so, um, you know, to measure single cell metabolism isn't easy. And you gentlemen know that through your works with uh, metabolomics. Uh, our approach was slightly different because we did targeted analysis. We just looked at specific um, amino acids and carbohydrates. So we have a little degree more of sensitivity. 
But I think what's really fascinating is the work that people like Jeremy Thompson and, and Denny are doing with new microscopies. Can we use microscopy to actually look at the metabolic activity of embryos, <clears throat> whether it's spectral, hyperspectral analysis or, or FLIN? I think if we, in the next few years, what we'll see is uh, Denny's approach and our approach merge. In fact, we've been trying to get this together and a pandemic got in the way, um, where we can actually do the media analysis with the FLIN <clears throat> to sort of see what exactly FLIM is measuring and in terms of metabolic stuff. The interesting thing is that over the last few years, I would say the last five years, has been a complete uh, epiphany with regards to embryonic and metabolic functions in cells. And that's because of this term, which Denny loves me to say, is metaboloepigenetics. Um, and it's really understanding that metabolic intermediates and cofactors such as alpha-ketoglutarate, citrate, uh, and importantly, NAD, are, are powerful epigenetic modulators themselves, and indeed lactate is as well. And so now we're beginning to understand how nutrients not only affect metabolism, but also affect the epigenome. So this has implications for understanding how diet and the environment can impact the embryo, let alone how the culture environment impacts the embryo. Um, so this is, a, this is a, a Pandora's box we opened five years ago, and again, there's so much exciting stuff coming out in there. And I agree with Dan, other than the culture media as well, the, the very conditions that you grow an embryo in, the micro environment that you can create around an embryo is very important. So if you consider an embryo on a dish, it just sits there on a flat polystyrene dish. There's no micro environment it can create in a drop. But once you start to reconfigure that environment in terms of a well or creating through microfabrication, something that we've been doing with Jeremy Thompson uh, to create environments which actually the embryo can sort of grow in a nest, as it were. Um, we've seen, and certainly work of one of our grad students, Rebecca Kelly, she published that in RBM Online, um, that if you grow embryos in these wells, their physiology is different. So it's fascinating simply by changing the microenvironment. And indeed, when you look at cell niches in the body, um, that's exactly how we exist. Every cell type has a niche within our body in its own microenvironment. Stem cells in our body exist in a microenvironment in a very transient fashion. Stem cells in the laboratory, we put on a dish and wonder why they don't do what we expect them to do. It's because they haven't got a microenvironment. So those things are, are really going to change how we look and grow embryos, I think, too. Wow. That's very, very uh, insightful. Finally, any, any any projections, just one or two, about uh, what will be the next big change uh, in embryology, in addition to what you have just said, such as you know, artificial intelligence or automation. Do you see them? Do you see automation as a possibility, or is there any other? Uh, I don't know, like out of the box thing that you can imagine. Um, or maybe you don't want to tell me. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> Let, let's stick to the things you, you're willing to tell me. <laughs> you know, I think uh, rather than out of the box, I think David will probably talk about lab in a box. Um, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and that stems also from, you know, the lab on a chip concept. So I, I think now we see more of a, a conglomeration of, of different aspects of, of science coming together more. So, you know, I, I yeah. definitely see, you know, the biomedical engineering capabilities of creating, you know, microfluidic environments, for example. So I think microfluidics, 
really lends itself to to what we do in the IVF lab, you know, even in terms of sperm selection, if you want, but but also in, in growing embryos, allowing, as David said, to for us to sort of create these niches for embryos to grow in. So I think that married, obviously, with artificial intelligence in some capabilities, I think that's where we're going to go to. Um, I, I definitely see automation, um, you know, encroaching slowly in, into the lab. And, you know, we already see that with certain vitrification devices. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think because of those breakthroughs that Denny's alluded to, which are happening now all around us, go all the way back to that culture kids stuff that we did 30 years ago where we were looking at gradients and and you know microfluidics microperfusion it will will be there so we can actually in real time look at instead of just using two media we can actually use gradients of media uh, <clears throat> and not only can you then expose embryos to gradients of media you can ex then analyze the media coming out in real time so you'll get a, a, a real-time readout on embryonic health so you'll be giving embryos a more dynamic environment to grow. We'll be able to get a dynamic readout of all of that. Through visualization and, and time-lapse, we've got all the morphokinetic data. Artificial intelligence is already helping us interpret all our morphokinetics. Imagine what artificial intelligence will be able to do with morphokinetics, spectral analysis, FLIM, um, metabolic outputs. Really, you know, can, can we ultimately do truly non-invasive aneuploidy screening as a result through AI. These are the things that, are, that, that people are waiting to, to answer, questions are waiting to be answered. I think, Emery, it goes back, I think you asked a question before about can we impact the embryo's journey in, in that? So could you envisage, like in a microfluidic environment, that actually you're not treating the group of embryos, but you could actually, you could align changes in culture media to the developmental stage and embryos in. So if one embryo from the same patient is at the four cell stage and another one at eight cell stage, could you actually change the media individually for those culture media to try to get that sort of poorer embryo to grow better? So you, you could even envisage, you know, the personalized embryo culture system in, in some way that, that may actually, you know, impact the chances of a, a patient having not just one good embryo, but maybe two, three. So I think, you know, that that would be the ultimate aim for me in the future, I think. Yeah. And and to use um, AI to also analyze the sort of the metabolic health of the parents, we know that those gametes were already programmed from what the parents have consumed in their lifestyle. Uh, that's clear. So perhaps, again, using all that technology, culture would be modified depending on where those eggs have come from in the first place. Wow. Uh, this was amazing, really. You know, I always uh, say that you you learn, you learn, you produce. You you know, very few people become like you, but it's very difficult to be so accomplished and having produced so much, but have so many ideas for the future. Also, there's this time that comes, like as uh, Bill Clinton was saying, more yesterdays than tomorrows. But you you guys seem to have uh, equal tomorrows as yesterday. So thank you so much for joining. Uh, I, I learned a lot. I enjoyed a lot. I hope people who listen will enjoy. And uh, we're really grateful that you you, uh, you chose to spend your time with us. Thank you. Thanks, Emery. Thanks a lot. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.
Thank you.